Well, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning together. As we come to the almost halfway point through this letter from the Apostle Paul. As you make your way there, let's go to the Lord and ask him for his help and his grace. Lord, as we open your word this morning, it's our prayer and our hope that you would meet us here and that you would work in us everything that we need. Lord, would you grant us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive, that our lives would be transformed by your power and for your glory. We thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself and that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Help us to find it now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Earlier this week, a good friend of mine I was talking to on the phone pointed out to me, he was talking about a book that he was reading, that the United States has been at war for 222 out of the 239 years of its existence. There's only been 21 years of known peace in our nation's short history few years in the 1820s, a few years in the 1930s, and a year here or so, or here and there. 21 years of peace. I thought about that. I thought, that's pretty astonishing to me. It's kind of a reality check, I guess, when I was just thinking through history, and I guess that's true if you count all of the conflicts, not only the big wars, but even all of the conflicts that this nation has been part of. And I thought, well, why was I so astonished by that? One of the reasons I think, and in some ways I'm embarrassed to say in this community, especially with the type of war that we fight today, it often doesn't feel like we're at war. Now, I know for many of you that's not the case because your job is to support much of what's going on in the world. But for many of us who aren't directly engaged daily in present combat, it's easy to lose sight of the reality of war. It's over there somewhere. And certainly in our day and time, it's much different than the wars of the past. And I think, as I thought about that, I thought, as, it, as I thought about this text, if we're not careful as Christians, we can fall into the same calloused, apathetic trap. The reality is that the Christian life is a lifelong war. The difference, though, is that it's not over there somewhere, it's in here. And it's not just a few people fighting. We are all called to the engagement. We are all called to the battle. And while I certainly pray that there would be a day in our nation where we could enjoy peace once again, that there would be no conflict, no war, the reality that we face as Christians is that there will never be a day this side of heaven when we are not at war against sin. And as long as sin is present, so will be the fight against it. And I believe that Paul's words here in Colossians chapter 3 not only remind us of that reality, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, give us 
encouragement and strength in the midst of it. So let us hear this morning from Colossians chapter 3. I'm actually going to begin back in verse 1, pick up from the text that Jeremy preached last week and read down through verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul's instruction and exhortation to us from this passage is simply this. Since we have been raised with Christ, verses 1 through 4, we are called and empowered to live a new and holy life. This new life that God has given us in Christ not only exhorts us, but it enables us to put away the old manner of living so that we may put on the new. So this morning, we're going we're to look at the call to put away or to put to death earthly passions, and the next two weeks, we're going to consider what Christ calls us to put on. So for three weeks, we're going to look at living the resurrected life. What does that look like? This morning, what it is that we're to put away. The next two weeks, what it is that we're to put on. So today, we're going to look at the putting away or putting to death earthly passions. And as we look at this, we're going to consider three things. We're going to consider the command to put to death earthly passions. We're going to see the reason to do so, and we're going to see the impact of it. Okay, the command, the reason, the impact. You with me so far? Pretty simple. All right. Text is not so simple. It's easy to understand, hard to apply at times. Let's look at this together. The command. The command. Paul continues to build from what he's previously said. Notice he says in verse 5, put to death therefore. And the word therefore is connecting us right back to those previous verses where we are told as a matter of fact that if you are a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. You are in union with him. You've been united together with Jesus. And because of that, you are now called to live a life that is to put to death the deeds of the body. To death, put to death, therefore. Notice in verse 3 he says, you have died. It's a statement of what has happened to us, and now he's commanding us to put to death. And brothers and sisters, this order so matters. You need to understand how important getting this order is. What Paul is saying here is not do and live. He is saying live and do. Because of your life with Christ, because of your union with Jesus, because of your resurrection with him, you are now called to live in a way that reflects his character. It's a call really to live out the victory that we have in Jesus, a victory that's already been won. In essence, what Paul is saying here is that we're to let the old man 
who died with Christ be dead. We know that he says this in Romans chapter 6. It's very similar to what he says in Romans chapter 6. In verses 6 and 7, Paul writes there, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Christians, if you are, well, let me just say this. If you are a Christian, you are no longer enslaved to sin. For, the one, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Doesn't mean we don't sin. It means that you're no longer enslaved by it. If you were to jump to verse 11 there, he says, So all, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Then he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your bodies to make you obey their passions. And here in Colossians chapter 3, as Paul begins to command this, he, he, he does something, I think, quite helpful. He gives us next a couple of lists of sins or vices, we could say, that believers are to be sure to work on putting to death because these kinds of sins betray our identity as God's redeemed people. This is not an exhaustive list of sins. This is not something where he's listing every sin possible uh, that, that, you can, that you can muster up, but he's, just, he's extracting some of these personal sins and corporate sins so that we know the kind of life we've been called to live as the people of God. So let's look at these briefly this morning. I was saying earlier, we could, we, could, we could spend a long time in verses 5 through 11, weeks. What must we kill? Verse 5, Paul gets very specific, doesn't he? I think this is a good example for us to remember, by the way, as we think about the, the, the sins that we have in our lives. So often we simply approach our sin generally and not specifically. Lord, I'm bad. Lord, I've done wrong. Paul gets very specific. He names the sins, doesn't he? It would do us well to do the same. Notice he begins in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Then he lists several, five things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice here in the text how Paul moves from the outward to the inward. He goes from outward action to inward motivation, and that's helpful for us to see because not only does he begin with, not only does he address the outward manifestation of sin, he slowly pulls back the layers where we can see the true motives of the heart. From outward manifestations of sin to inward cravings of the heart. He begins here with sexual immorality, a word that covers all sexual sin, whatever sexual sin you can come up with. And then he pulls back the curtain to lead, to, to help us see what leads to this kind of behavior. He says that sexual immorality, is, this outward manifestation, is linked to impurity, an attitude of the heart which is driven by our passion, our uncontrolled lust, things that we crave. And behind that is evil desire, which is an ungodly impulse. And back of that is covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. In a book by Elise Fitzpatrick called Idols of the Heart. She says, idols aren't just stone statues. No, idols are the thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in the place of the true God. Idols cause us to ignore the true God in search of what we think we need. That's exactly what Paul is getting at here. Idols of the heart which lead to outward manifestations of sin. 
So behind something like sexual immorality is a heart that is not centered on God's desire for us, but rather upon what we desire and think we must have, therefore, idolatrous desires. Get to the point of thinking, if I don't have this thing, if I don't have this experience, if I don't fulfill this longing, then I cannot surely be satisfied and truly be happy. Paul says we must put them to death. Not only the outward manifestations, but also the inward desires. Put them to death. Left unchecked, they will have a devastating impact on you. We could get real specific this morning. Some of you here today are struggling with pornography. I know that because it's an epidemic. It's a known fact in our culture. I don't know you by name, but I know that in a group this size, it is surely the case that a good number of you are struggling with that. It's a deep issue that's bigger than simply accountability software, as useful as that is. I think everyone should have it. But it's not a matter of just simply slapping an accountability software on a phone or on a computer. Download the software. But go further than that. You've got to dig down into the weeds of the heart, which is what's driving that, that impulse. Dating relationships are always dangerous. Following the ways of the world, thinking premarital sex is okay, when God has clearly defined sex as between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. We just kind of laugh it off as if it's no big deal. It's not a laughing matter. God makes it clear what he has designed and what is good and right. But not only is Paul concerned about these kinds of inward, personal matters, he also shows us how sin has an impact not just on us, but also on others. Look at the second list in verse 8. Anger, rage or wrath, malice, a refusal to forgive, slander, where we defame somebody's character or obscene talk. And then there's verse 9, that we should not lie to one another. It's a call for honesty. These are mostly actions that impact directly other people, the kinds of sins that affect community life. And the point Paul is making here is simple. When we refuse to put away sin, it not only impacts us personally, but it also impacts people around us. I think when you look at these lists, and we could, dive, we could dive deep into these lists and really flesh them out sin by sin. I mean, we could preach ten sermons on this, two lists of five. We could preach ten sermons on this alone. But I think as we kind of step back and we see what Paul is doing, he's saying personal holiness and corporate relationships are vastly important for the believer to be part of. And part of putting off sin means that you're working on personal holiness while you're also working on human relationships. With all these sins and more, it's more than just the behavior. There's the motives and the desires that fuel them. Paul is not saying so long as your external behavior is good, all is well. He's saying we must also go down to the desire level. Whether dealing with yourself or with how you may be impacting other people, you shouldn't just be asking, what am I doing? You should also ask, what am I desiring? 
And I think that'll help you and help me get down to the root of what it is called, God calls us to do as we, we're called to put off sin, put to death, put away. You know, the question naturally comes, well, how do we do that? And we, we, again, we could tease this out quite a bit. Uh, how, do we, how do we put to death? How do we put away? Again, Paul's not leaving this as some optional thing, some extra thing that we can do if we get around to it. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. One writer put it bluntly when he, when he was describing the putting to death of sin, that, that we're to lay our hands on sin's throat and not release the pressure until it stops breathing. That's the picture we have here. How do you do that? Well, first and foremost, you must be raised with Christ. You cannot fight and put to death sin if you're not a Christian, period. And so you may be here today and you may think, my life's pretty jacked up. I've got some struggles going on in my life. I try. I try to be a good person. I try to do good. I try to push these things away. And the truth is, I'm not a Christian. I haven't put my hope in Christ. But I'm still trying to be a good person. Listen, you will never be in a position where you can truly fight against sin if you're not following the one who conquered it. And so your first response today is to not try harder your first response today is to acknowledge that God is your creator. You've rebelled against him. You have fallen into sin just like the rest of us. And your only hope is to put your faith in the one who came, lived the life you should have lived, and died on the cross to bear the full wrath and judgment for your sin. And when you put your hope in him, he gives you new life. He gives you a new heart. He raises you from the dead and he empowers you to then fight that fight against sin. You cannot win against sin and temptation without Jesus. Look to him first and foremost. Second thing is that we should be regularly shaped by the word of God. We should be regularly going to the gospel and reminding ourselves of the promises that God has given us in the gospel. That's why we're walking through Colossians and reminding ourselves week after week what it is, who it is Christ is, what it is he did, and what it is now we're called to be because of that. Third, we should be specific and honest about the gravity of our sin. See it as God sees it. We should not come to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I've been bad today. Forgive me. Yeah, you have. Be specific. Paul gets specific, doesn't he? See it as God sees it. Get honest with the Lord. Lord, I'm pursuing these things because I have these desires. I'm doing this because I want that. I fly off the handle and slander people because it makes me feel and look better. Very specific. Seeing sin for what it truly is. And then fourth, be in a healthy community and surround yourself with those who will speak truth to you. These are just starting points. So we see the command, put to death, put away what is earthly in you. Why? <laughs> Why? What's the reason? Number two. I mean, you might read this text, you may think, well, what's the, what's the big deal? But Paul tells us why this is such a big deal. Two reasons or motives why we must take this radical action against sin. First of all, the wrath of God. 
The wrath of God. We see it in the text. Verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, this is a reminder to us that we all ought to take sin as serious as God does. Verse 6, Paul reminds us that we put these things to death because on account of these things, God's wrath is coming. J.C. Ryle, great Anglican, said, He who would make great strides in holiness must first consider the greatness of sin. And friends, we will not understand the greatness of sin until we understand the greatness and the holiness and the righteousness of God, the one whom we've sinned against. Keep in mind that God's wrath is not like human wrath. You know, in verse 8, it says, put away anger, wrath, malice. That wrath in verse 8 is not the same kind of wrath as it is in verse 6. Human wrath and God's wrath are vastly different. Human wrath is an uncontrolled anger flying off at the handle, whereas God's wrath is a righteous, controlled, right response to sin. We know that we live in a day and time where this notion of God's wrath is not very popular. People will talk about love. God is a God of love, and he certainly is. No question. He is a God of love. But the moment you mention the wrath of God, they're out. That's not the God I serve, they will say. But this text makes clear that God's wrath will come on account of these things. It is his righteous, his correct, his right response because of his holiness against that which has gone against his holiness. Now, to be clear about the thrust of Paul's warning here, he's writing to the church at Colossae, he's writing to Christians, and he's not saying that if you happen to sin in these areas, you will immediately encounter the wrath of God. Now, there are people in the Bible that did immediately encounter the wrath of God. So I don't think you would want to test him. I think what he's saying to the believer is that for those who have died and been raised with Christ, those whose debt has been paid, those who have been rooted and established in Christ should have nothing to do with anything that is characteristic of those who will incur the wrath of God. In other words, those for whom Christ bore God's wrath should not want to live in any way that resemble those who will experience God's wrath. We should ask ourselves regularly, can I truly live for that which for my Savior died? God's wrath is coming on account of these things. So that is one reason. Number two, the work of God. The work of God. Not only does Paul encourage putting away sin by reminding us about the wrath of God, but he wants us to positively reinforce it by reminding us what God has done in salvation. In essence, what Paul is saying here in this text, remember who you are. It's one of the ways that we put to death sin is remember who you are. He says, on account of these things, the list, wrath of God is coming. And then he says in verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, and he gives that list. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. He looks back to the status of the Christian before conversion and says, In these you once walked, these sins formally characterized how you lived out your life 
but walk in them no more. Take off the old garments and put on the new ones. You have a new position. You've been raised from death to life. Put them away and put on that which is new. Paul's point here is simply to say you should put off sin because you're a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new have come. Brothers and sisters, here is, here is good news for you and for me. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, you no longer have to walk in the flesh. If you are in Christ, you have been freed from sin's dominion and power over you. Sin is no longer your master. It doesn't own you like it previously did. You can say no and thus make progress. You aren't who you were. So, so don't live like it. And I know it's easy for me to say that. It's so easy for me to, to preach that. I feel like a hypocrite most Sundays when I'm preaching these kinds of things because I know the depths of our hearts, how difficult it is to, to battle against sin. I get it. But, but God's word is telling us by the grace of God, empowered by the spirit of God, we have been set free from the tyranny and the power and enslavement of sin's dominion over us. Because of that, we can live in obedience to Christ. Brothers and sisters, sinful passions are powerful. But with Christ, they are ultimately powerless. The work of God is to make us like himself. He has made us a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Let that motivate you and encourage you and be reason enough to follow after him. What about the impact? We've seen the command, we've seen the reasons. What about the impact? What happens when we take this command seriously? What happens? Foremost, we honor and glorify God by living the way that he's paid for us, right? We, we please him. We live in a way that's, that's good and right and holy and, and, and in a way that magnifies him and, and puts his glory on display. But I want you to see two other things that result from a believer living the resurrected life as we seek to put away that which is earthly in us. Number one, individual holiness. Verses 9 and 10, he says that we are to put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see that last part? Which is being renewed. You're putting off, putting on which is being renewed. Notice two things happening here. One active and one passive. Both leading us to the same end. The active, he's saying put off the old, put on the new. This is human activity. This is human responsibility that, that we are required to pursue. God has commanded that we live this way, that we put away these things, and we put on these things. We're going to look at those things next two weeks. Put off, put on. But notice he says, after that, which he's talking about the self, which is being renewed. That is something, something happening to you. You're doing something, but you're also having something done to you. You're being renewed. This is God's work. It's being done to you. 
And so this is a work that we see that, that requires both the sovereign work of God and the human responsibility of man coming together here. As we strive to, to live the resurrected life, it's the power of God that's enabling us and renewing us as we put off the old and put on the new. There's a work going on in us to make us more like Jesus, being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. This is the, the end, the goal for which we are called to live this way. You're not called to put away sin so that you can boast of how righteous you are. You are called to put away sin and put on righteousness so that you can look more and more like Jesus and therefore bring him glory. Paul says in Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is God's great goal for you, that you would reflect the image of Christ. That over time, you would look more and more and more and more like Jesus. So as you seek to put to death sin, you must keep in mind that God's desire for you is to reflect the image and character of Christ. You are being worked on as God works to make you more and more like Jesus. Listen, God's plan is not merely to get you to heaven. His plan is to fit you for heaven. So that you live forever. Conform to the image of our Savior. Individual holiness is the impact. As you strive to put off sin and put off those things that are of the old man, what you're doing is you are fulfilling the plan of God to make you more and more like Christ. To fight against that, to, to, to hold up and just say, I'm, I'm not worried about that. I'm not going to worry about putting off sin and trying to, to obey in these areas. This is not the Christian mindset. I'm not saying it's not a struggle. In fact, I think the struggle is a good sign. Non-Christians don't struggle. Struggle is, is, is a healthy tension and a good sign, to, that, but, but we've got to be careful of that, don't we? Individual holiness is that which God has designed for us. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews says. But then there's a unified community that's also an impact. We see that in verse 11. It says here, within this new community, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Brothers and sisters, the, the thing that this teaches us is that the way you conduct yourself and live out your life does not only have implication for you, it also has implication for the whole church. Here there is not Greek or Jew, and he goes on. The context where all this is fleshed out is within the Christian community. A community, by the way, that is quite diverse. Paul is writing to a people from a variety of backgrounds. He lists them here. And listen, Greeks and Jews hated each other. They hated each other. So the potential for friction and division often existed in the early church. It continued to exist and will exist till Christ comes again. But what we're told here is that in Christ, in the gospel, these cultural, ethnic, religious, and social barriers that exist are torn down. The separation that these groups experienced in Paul's day, especially between Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, were as deep-seated as anything that we experience in our day. Had nothing to do with each other. 
There was an intense hatred that existed between these groups of people. But Paul says, in Christ, these barriers are now gone. In other words, in the gospel, distinctions that often separate people become irrelevant from the perspective of who's in the family. In essence, we're all united. We're all in the family, right? So the gospel is good for all, and it puts us all in the same family, and that's wonderful truth that we're all happy to celebrate. That's what he's, at the end of the day, that's what he's saying, is that the gospel tears down these barriers, it puts away these divisions, and it unites us all as one body in Christ. But there's a couple of things this does not mean. It doesn't mean we should not acknowledge and even celebrate our differences. There's a foolish notion these days, especially when it comes to racial matters, that we should just be colorblind, not see people for the reality of who they are. We just should see each other as all as one. Well, part of the beauty and image of God is that God made us different. Part of the beauty of diversity is that we are all different colors. We shouldn't just be ignorant to that and try to pretend it doesn't exist when it does because it's part of God's creation. Part of what it means to bear the image of God, a God who made us quite diverse. And the beauty of the gospel is that it unifies us all in the gospel despite our differences. And we need to see and celebrate many of these differences as part of the beauty that God has created. And the second thing it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that social and racial and ethnic and economic distinctions and challenges disappear. The gospel, clearly, as the scripture tells us, does tear down the dividing wall of hostility. The problem is, is that we keep trying to prop it back up. Different times and different places and in different ways. There's always the residue of the old man still lingering. And that certainly shows up in the things that make us different from each other. Even though Christ treats us all equal as co-heirs, we don't always see each other in that light. I think a passage like this would just rebuke us and remind us that we should. Paul concludes in verse 11 by saying that Christ is all and in all. In other words, these, if these distinctions no longer matter concerning our standing in Christ, then what matters? And his conclusion is Jesus matters. Christ is what matters. Christ is everything to us, and he indwells all peoples, no matter their ethnicity, their economic or social status. Christ is no less a savior to the Gentiles as he is to the Jews. He indwells all who trust in him. And if Christ is pleased to indwell someone, we should be fast to embrace them. And part of embracing them means loving them, listening to them, and serving them. Rejecting them is rejecting Christ. So, for example, when an elderly person is not valued, Christ is not valued. When the majority culture ignores the perceived or real hurts of the minority culture, Christ is ignored. When the poor and marginalized, or rich people for that matter, are looked upon with speculation and contempt, Christ is looked on with speculation and contempt. 
You see, the problem is not with the gospel or with Christ. The problem is with this old man that still lingers, that Paul's calling us to put away, to put to death. And part of putting away the old man means we celebrate our unity in the gospel. And because of that unity, we must move toward each other, even in the midst of our differences. And that, friends, it calls us, it it requires us to recognize our own selfish tendencies, our biases and privileges as potential barriers to honoring the true unity that the gospel brings. You know, we all come to Christ with different backgrounds, struggles, and experiences. The reality is, is that you may not have those same experiences as someone else. You may not have those same struggles or those same challenges that other people have. I think this is just a simple reminder to us that we need to be people of empathy. And we need to listen better. And we need to love each other because we're united in the gospel. Jesus creates that unity. We're called to maintain it. And part of maintaining it means we must move toward each other amidst our differences and learn to care for each other well. So when Christians and churches get this and seek to put away sinful desires, such anger and wrath and malice, and they strive to help and listen and serve each other, then we will begin to see the reality that exists, that we are indeed one in Christ. That Christ is all and he is in all. And that which we, is something for which we should celebrate. So it has an impact on our community. As you strive to put off sin and put off things that are of earthly passion. It has an impact on you personally. It has an impact on us as a community. Friends, my prayer is that Paul's exhortation for us to put off sin is not something that we would take lightly. I would remind you. We are at war. And I'm not talking about over there somewhere. I'm talking about right here. We are, we are at war. Too many of us are living as, the, as if there is no war or conflict. A Christian will never know a time this side of heaven when, the, when we can lay down the weapons of war against sin. There will never be a time when you won't have to fight to kill your sin. But there's good news. Praise God that you and I can fight and overcome sins that impact you and others because you and I are united to the one who came and triumphed over sin once and for all. So that we individually and as a community can reflect his glory together. The victory is ours in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are at war, but there is a time of peace coming. And it's going to be that day when the Prince of Peace splits the sky. And he comes in all of his glory to make all things new. And I don't know about you. My weak flesh and weary flesh longs for that day. And in the meantime, we have all the confidence and all the hope that we need to continue to press on and to put away that which is earthly. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this exhortation, this reminder, this calling to put to death that which is earthly in us. For our own sake and for the sake of others around us, Lord, you've called us to this, that it would all culminate in you, you receiving glory. God, this is about you, and it's about your purpose for us, that we would reflect the character and image of our Savior in all that we do. Father, would you remind us this morning that we are, in fact, at war? Strangely enough, a war that has already been won. The victory has been secured in Christ. Because of that reality and because of that hope, Lord, would you help us to fight? Would you help us to fight as hard as it is that we may look more and more like Christ and that we would not fall short? of his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.